The Imago Dei, we are created. The, the scriptures say that in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And Wesleyans believe and hold to this truth that it's not total depravity, but that we lost, when the fall came, we lost the moral image of God. But the Imago Dei is there. It's just buried under layers of sin. And our job is not to size one another up, church. Our job is to call out of one another the Imago Dei that lies buried buried between the murk and the muck of sin in this world. Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to see you. I'm excited this morning for a couple of reasons. One, uh, one in particular that I've uh, been listening to a lot of Toby Mac the last few days. And uh, in a few weeks, in a few weeks, Cheryl and I have plans to see Toby Mac in concert in Indianapolis. Looking forward to hearing him, and uh, it's like the sixth time, maybe seventh time that I've seen uh, his live show, but it's always awesome. It's always, you know, familiar, but different, and always loud, and, and uh, the music is just something I love. <laughs> and as always, I hope, I hope he does some of my favorite songs, like Catch a Fire, or One World, or J Train. If you don't know those songs, you can Google them. It's Toby Mac, and... One of my favorites that I hope he does is when love is in the house. The lines, the lyric to the song, when love is in the house, the house is packed. So much so I had to leave the back door cracked. My mom always said, it's a matter of fact, when love is in the house, the house is packed. I love, do you want me to wrap it? I don't think so, but uh, I don't have my sidekick with me, but... Uh, I hope he does that song, and if he doesn't, there's always that chance at the end, right? People kind of expect to hear their favorite songs when they go to hear their favorite artists, and, and if they don't play it, there's that moment at the end when everybody gets together and they start chanting one more song, one more song, one more song, hope you come out and, and do your favorite song. I've always wondered, honestly, if anybody would ever do that at the end of a message, right? Like one more verse, <laughs> one more verse. Keep, keep going. Well, my name is Bob, and I'm one of the pastors here at Faith, and I like Toby Mac. But this morning, uh, we start a new series of messages with one that um, I shared originally during our candidating weekend, at least. At least the biblical text is the same. Luke chapter 19, it's on page 1040 in, uh, in your, the Bibles that are in the pews and under the, under the chairs. Luke chapter 19. Uh, we shared it our candidating weekend, and for those of you who don't know, candidating weekend is that official, official interview weekend where when a church and a potential pastor, they do this dance, you know, and they try to discern, is this a good fit or not? Is this what God has for us or not? Seen the resume, we've listened to a few sermons, and now in person, is this... 
this a fit or not? And I remember the weekend we came, and I, I remember that I preached from Luke chapter 19, the triumphal entry, as Luke describes it. The pace of events, let me set the stage. The, the pace of events in Jesus' life are, are speeding up, increasing dramatically. He is, he is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's on his way to the cross. There are some encounters around Jericho that take place, one with a, a blind beggar, and then another with a, a, a loathsome tax collector. And I, I remember in, in, in the midst of that, you will too, uh, uh, Jesus has just taught about uh, and had an encounter with a rich young ruler, and the disciples are asking him, you know, well then, who can be saved? And Jesus said, follow me, I'll show you, and blind beggar, loathsome tax collector, this is who I've come to get. And then Jesus teaches about life investments, about good uh, stewardship planning, the parable of the 10 minus. And now it's the final leg of the journey. Jesus covers the short distance between Bethpage and, and Bethany. You know, you remember who lived in Bethany is Lazarus and his sisters. Lazarus, of course, the one whom Jesus raised from the dead. And he's leaving that, that small, uh, like, Farmersburg area. And he's making his way toward Jerusalem. And he's riding on the foal of a donkey, as uh, the prophet Zechariah had predicted hundreds of years before. See, your Savior comes, your Messiah comes, gentle and humble, riding on a colt, even the foal of a donkey. So there's all this stuff going on. Jesus taking the disciples through a lab, Jesus teaching, Jesus fulfilling prophecy, words spoken long ago. And as he crests the hill, he, he, he covers a little rise. And, and as he gets to the top of the hill, Luke records a, an incredible moment as Jesus takes in and glimpses the holy city, the Jerusalem. Luke says this, verse 41, chapter 19. As he approached Jerusalem, and saw the city, he wept over it. He said, he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, if you just knew, if you could just see it, but now it's, it's hidden from your eyes. The veil. And the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. It will be unrecognizable. Total devastation because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You missed it. 
the scene, it evokes all kinds of emotion for me. Perhaps more powerful than any other reality, Jesus is moving closer to an agonizing death. You, you, you know this. Each step he takes, each, each day that passes, he's moving closer to this agonizing death. I have called it the most preposterous, ridiculous sin in all of history. Level of personal torment Jesus will endure, the writer to the Hebrews says, is beyond anything we can imagine because we've not yet endured to that point of resisting sin and temptation. We can't know what Jesus is going through in this moment. And in the midst of this personal battle that will eventuate with Jesus praying over a, a rock in Gethsemane, Father, if there's any other way, I, I, I don't know if I can bear this, Father. It's just so... Ugh. In the midst of that, in the midst of that personal battle, Jesus is still only thinking about the people that he came to save. He's weeping. They will miss him. His heart is breaking. I love what Max Lucado writes in his little book, Because of Bethlehem. I read it after Christmas at the suggestion of somebody. And Lucado writes, you know, God has a face. We've seen his face. And his face, the incarnation of Jesus, changes everything. Changes everything. A few years ago, I completed some research on the use of icons in Christian worship. Icons, those religious images, symbols that are typically associated with the Eastern Church. Once, uh, when I lived in Wyoming, Buffalo, I, I was, became good friends with the Catholic priest, Father Pete. And I would go to the rectory and drink coffee, and we would banter back and forth, and we, we knew we just, we had differences, but we hung out together and spent time, and he, and he respected me, and I respected him, and he, he invited me. I was the only Protestant pastor in the town that he invited to a special service where the Eastern Church and the Western Church came together. He said, come. I want you to be my special guest. St. John of Chrysostom, the feast of. And he preached, and there were all these icons, these beautiful, beautiful icons in the church. It was amazing. Sad epitaph on history is that after the Reformation, uh, during the peasant wars, uh, in the years that followed that, many people broke in and destroyed some of the greatest art in history. Iconoclast, no graven images, destroy it all. That's just bonus. But my paper hinged on this statement that I wrote, hinged on this statement, the incarnation changed everything. Now, now people had seen the face of God. We had an image of, we know what he looks like, he has a face. He's appeared. As Paul said, he's the image of the invisible God. Jesus himself told Thomas, one of the disciples, because you have seen me, Thomas, you have seen the Father. 
And Lucado goes on and writes in his book, it's true, when God took on a face, the human face, everything changed. Everything changed. And this is the majestic drama playing out on that dusty road outside the city of Jerusalem. The face of God covered with tears, weeping over what might have been if the people had just been able to see, if they'd only known who was if they could only see me. They had only seen. I'm right here. You're missing me caught up in all this other stuff. You're missing me. I'm right in front of you. The one that you've been waiting, waiting, waiting to see. So the scriptures teach us that everything hinges on seeing Jesus. That's why he came, right? So we would see him as he really is. So we would know God as he really is. So eyes of faith, we could see him. Everything hinges on seeing Jesus. Once as Jesus and his disciples made their way, uh, they, they crossed paths with a person who had been blind his entire life. Life was hard enough in those days, incredibly hard, brutal. Sometimes we, we sanitize these biblical stories so much, but I don't think there are enough words to describe how harsh and brutal the realities of life were in Jesus' day. Hard enough. But to be blind too is like it was worse than a death sentence. It was like hell on earth. And the disciples... Coming up upon the man, you remember this from John chapter 9, they, they come up upon the man and, and they say, hey, Rabbi, Jesus, teacher, who sinned? This man or his parents? That's interesting because it seems for a moment that the disciples are much more interested in turning this man, this person, into a theological lesson than seeing him as a person. That's another sermon for another day. But they asked Jesus, and quickly, Jesus turns the tables, and the next thing you know, Jesus is making mud with his spit and telling the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Go wash. And boom! The man does it, and, and he's healed, and the blind man can see, and then, and then immediately following, a tragic, almost tragic, comic drama begins to unfold in the wake of the miracle as people try to decide, uh, was this man healed? Was he even the man that was really blind? Is this, are we talking about the same guy? And, and who healed him to begin with? And, and who has authority to do that kind of thing? And why don't you tell us? And the man said, you know, I don't know what all you're making this fuss about. All I know is I was blind and now I see. Sounds like a song, doesn't it? John chapter 9, you can check it out. And the series of events concludes with this exchange between Jesus and the main characters. Remember? The Pharisees, the religious leaders, have 
grown frustrated, and they just finally throw the man out and say, yeah. Jesus comes upon him. He heard that they had thrown him out, and when he had found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Says to the man he just healed. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Messiah? Do you believe in the Christ? That's the question. Really, the question behind the question is, Jesus is asking me, do you believe I am the Messiah? Do you believe I am the Christ? The man asked, who, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you've seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. Whenever I hear this, read this passage, I, I have this song, you know, scripture inspires song, inspired it for doxology for Paul, and it inspires it for me. And I, I think of this song, light of the world, you step down into darkness, open my eyes, let me see. Beauty that made this heart adore you, hope of a life spent with you. And the man sees Jesus, his spiritual eyes are opened by a miracle of God. The man says, Lord, I believe, and he fell down and he worshiped. And he worshiped. And then Jesus says, yeah, this is why I've come, for judgment. So that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees said, you know, are you calling us blind, Jesus? Hey, what are you saying about us? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. In other words, you think you know, but you don't. You think you've seen, but you haven't. And so everything changes and hinges on seeing Jesus. And, and this story of spiritual blindness, it's our story. Every one of us in this room, it's our story. Isn't it? Apart, apart from Jesus drawing near, apart from Jesus, the Holy Spirit, wooing us and, and drawing us and opening our eyes and helping us to see who he is, nothing, no hope. Nothing. So Jesus opens this man's eyes. Everything hinges, everything changes when he sees Jesus. But that's not all that the scriptures say about seeing Jesus. It's not. Interestingly, Matthew in chapter 25, he includes some important words about seeing Jesus. In fact, his conclusion is the same as John's, the same as all of Scripture. The crux of the matter is whether or not we see Jesus. Everything hinges on that. Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. It's a familiar passage, right? The doctrine of separation, the one that we're most uncomfortable with, that at the end of time, Jesus will separate goats on his left, sheep on his right. And the defining characteristic, according to Matthew, is, did you see me? He visited the, the sick, clothed the naked, visited the prisoners, looked after one another. Did, did you see me? The question wasn't, did they see me and you? The question was, did you see me and them? Do you see me? few days ago, just this week, Cheryl and I were in Five Below. How many of you have ever been to Five Below here in town? 
So you know what that is when I say we were in five below. We were in there and, and Cheryl doing her best uh, St. Francis of Assisi bought a gingerbread house to feed the animals out here, put it together and set it out for the animals. And, and we're talking to the guy behind the counter and if you've never been shopping with Cheryl, it's, it's a great treat because she will talk to literally anyone. Anyone at all. And uh, the guy standing behind the counter a couple of weeks before Christmas, Cheryl and I had been in there, and, and I had seen him, and he dressed kind of funky and, and uh, great personality. And, and I was walking out the door, and I said, you know, I wish I would have asked him why he was dressed like he was, what, what the significance of that was. So on this night, Cheryl and I are in there, and Cheryl asks him. And he tells us, and, and it's, it, we're laughing and having a good time. He says, you know what's funny about this is one time I was in the back of the store, and I'm wearing this, it's some kind of thing around his neck and, and uh, leather and it looks like a tie and you know, all the stuff together and it just looks, he said, some woman ran up to me and started screaming. Why did she start screaming? She said, she, said she thought I was ISIS. <laughs> ISIS in Five Below in Terre Haute. What are they gonna blow it up? I don't know. I thought, you know, it's kind of commentary on the rhetoric that's going on in our culture right now and the level of discourse. Threshold seems so low these days about what we're willing to say and think about people. Freshman congressman dropping the F-bomb Referring to a president, it's just ridiculous. The threshold is so low. Fear, hostility, hatred. There's a general ugliness, right? And it's almost like, it's almost like uh, our cynical world sees the devil in each other. Right? So consumed with distrust and measuring, interpreting, projecting onto others. People love, love, love to assign sinister motivations to people's actions, don't they? I know why they did that. They're just pure evil. I know why they did that. The spawn of Satan. Their neighbors, coworker to coworker, Democrat to Republican, husband to wife, child to parent. It's just, ugh. isn't it? Turn on the news. I've been at this a few years now, being a pastor. One of the things I've seen is that oftentimes the church isn't so much different than the world out there. Oh, now, preacher, you just need to hush. Right? Critical spirit, church, is not a spiritual gift. It's not. Measuring and sizing up each other, it's not a spiritual mark of spiritual maturity. 
seeing the worst in each other is not a sign that Jesus dwells within us. Dividing us versus them. Jesus once told his disciples, you will realize that I am in the Father and you're in me and I, listen, am in you. Paul said it another way, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ dwells within you, believer. And St. Athanasius wrote, therein lies our calling. If we believe that Jesus lives within us, we will see Jesus in others. In each other. On the face of each other. The Imago Dei, we are created. The, the scriptures say that in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And Wesleyans believe and hold to this truth that it's not total depravity, but that we lost when the fall came, we lost the moral image of God. But the Imago Dei is there. It's just buried under layers of sin. And our job is not to size one another up, church. Our job is to call out of one another the Imago Dei that lies buried between the murk and the muck of sin in this world. Amen? Do you see Jesus in one another? Do you see his face on the face of your spouse? At board meetings, do we see Jesus' face on one another? Sniping and backbiting, gossiping. Do we see Jesus' face? What if What if instead of praying about people we prayed for people or better yet with people What 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 if what if instead of talking about people we talked to one another. What if instead of asking God to change others, what if we ask God to change us? What, what, what if, what if we let go of who is right and whose preference is best. If we let go of that, and just said the only thing that really matters is 
Jesus lives in us. And in him we live and move and have our being. What if? What if we asked today? God, give me fresh eyes to see Jesus. What if? Today is Epiphany, January 6th. First Sunday in January. Historically, this day has been set aside by the church, has been remembered has the, in the church as uh, to commemorate the visit of the Magi, right? We three kings of... The visit of the Magi, when, when, when they followed the star, and Matthew records it in chapter 2. Men of renown who followed a star that eventually settled over the place where Mary and Jesus were. Seek the king. I want to see his face. And when they saw Jesus, just like, just like the blind man in, uh, in John chapter 9, just like the blind man in John chapter 9, they fell down and they worshipped him. They saw him. And they went home another way. Oh, I could preach that. They were changed. They saw the world differently. They saw all of eternity differently. They saw all of reality. Of course they went home a different way. They'd seen Jesus' face. Of course. Of course. It's great preaching material. But everything hinges on whether we see Jesus or not. That's what changes us. Open my eyes, let me see. Let me see. Today's also my dad's birthday. It's my niece Erin's birthday too. Told you that story before. Today's my dad's birthday. I wish I could tell you how old he would have been, but honestly, I don't know. He died 28 years ago on December 20th. 28 years ago. This day, every year when it comes, my sister will post something on Facebook. There'll be pictures. Every year when this day comes, it brings a peculiar heartache for me. Kind of a, a, I don't even know how to describe it. Wondering what might have been, what could have been. I'll never know. Angry, mean. I knew more about his leather belt than I knew about him. 
I knew where every crease in that thing was. I knew how fast he could get it off. I could hear it and just... God, I wonder, what could have been? Instead of the tragic story that most of my family story is, my brother and my sisters, it could have been. Here's the thing. I woke up this morning with a, with a song in my heart. Pretty simple chorus. I've sung it often. I've sung it in the church. I've sung it outside the church. I've sung it walking through the hallways. I've sung it random places. Words of the chorus, something like... Uh, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. And I wondered as I walked over here this morning that, that uh, while I was looking for coyotes or whatever, I was, it's dark. And I, and I wondered to myself this morning, I said, what, what, what could God do? What could God do with a group of people who sang this song? Not with their lips, but with their lives. What, what could God do with a group of people who truly saw his face? the face of Jesus in one another. Reconciliation might happen. Forgiveness might happen. Slaves might be freed. Who knows? Who knows? And I don't know. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is saying to you as you consider the words that have been shared and preached this morning. I don't know. All I really know is this. If we don't get this right, all the messages that I want to share over the next few weeks, to use Beth Moore's words, don't matter one whit. <laughs> Toby Mac sang it, Love is in the House. And when it's in the house, the house is packed.
reconciliation. Forgiveness. It's a beautiful thing when it happens. It's a beautiful thing when we let go of ourselves and just look, see Jesus. I don't, I don't have a response to tell you. This is your response. It may be that you get up and go to someone. It may be that you come here to see Jesus, right, face to face at the altar. It may be that you say, Jesus, open my eyes, give me believing faith. I don't know. But I know you want to sing with me, don't you? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. sing that again. But when Jesus removed the blindness for the man in chapter 9 of John, the man had to move. He had to go and obey. And I know you because I know me. And we'd much rather Jesus do his work in us in secret, in quiet, where nobody else sees. And I don't think this is one of those moments. And I'm going to beg you. I'm going to implore you. If the Holy Spirit is nudging and moving and massaging and get up. Exercise your faith. Go to that person. Go. Just go. If it's Jesus you need to come to this morning, just get to him. The altar. It's not Jesus. But he's waiting for you here. Just go. Just obey. Turn your eyes upon
not miss the moment. Don't leave here wondering what might have been. Don't. Don't. Turn your eyes. Full. God is faithful. The impossible will be possible because of him. Father, here we are. And I know, Holy Spirit, you're not, you're not finished working. You're not. as my man Toby Mack saying wow it's got to start somewhere why not here it's got to start sometime why not now so here we are Father we believe we've, we've heard a good word from you today Father we believe that this word that's been declared scriptures from the ancient texts it, it will accomplish its work now Father continue to accomplish your work in us Father we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.